0: Hey, fellas. I hope you're doing well. I just want you to know that I miss you. I wish we were doing this in person, having Miss Kim's delicious breakfast if you're a Thursday morning guy or having her dinner on a Wednesday night if you go to that uh, uh, that class. But I do miss you. I miss laughing with you. Uh, man, I miss hugging you. We're not huggers for the most part, but I think we'll be huggers when all this is over. And uh, I know we're all longing to be in each other's presence, and I'm looking forward to that day. However, I am thankful that the Lord has given us the technology uh, that we can continue in our study of the scriptures in the study of Genesis together. As you know, we're smack dab in the middle of the, of the Jacob narratives. Todd has been teaching um, on Jacob for the past couple of weeks. And I don't know about you, but as, as I've been studying Jacob and reading these passages and, and leading and, and uh, rather hearing um, uh, Todd's messages, I've been greatly encouraged and I hope you have too, uh, because really you and I are a lot like Jacob, which isn't altogether a good thing. <laughs> Jacob was a faithless person. He was inconsistent like his uh, grandfather before him. Um, and he he rarely doubted the Lord. He never, uh, 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 he, he lacked a God consciousness. And many times we, we struggle with that as well. However, I have been encouraged By our study in Jacob Um, because as we've seen uh, these narratives aren't really about Jacob they are however about God and what we've seen time and time again is God's triumphant grace in the life of Jacob that he could use a crooked stick like Jacob and love a crooked stick like Jacob and use them for his purposes (laughs) that's been extremely encouraging now, today, uh, uh, if I haven't asked you already, I can't remember, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to continue on looking at uh, uh, Jacob and all of his faux pas in his life. A little bit of uh, context of chapter 29. Last week, we saw that God gave an amazing gift um, to Jacob in the vision of, the, uh, of Jacob's ladder. We see, or rather as a staircase, as Todd told us last week. It's this, it's this beautiful, amazing staircase that, that reached up to heaven from the ground. And there were an army of angels ascending and descending. It was an angel freighted staircase. And what that symbolized to uh, Jacob was that God was committed to him that God was with him no matter what, that Jacob would be the successor uh, to the uh, uh, patriarchal promises, that Jacob was God's man, but that God was committed to Jacob on all all stops along the way, that God was not going to leave him, but rather he was going to guard him, guide him, and lead him in the way uh, that God has chosen. In, In practical terms, what that vision meant or rather symbolized was God's providential care and loving kindness to Jacob. It tells us that God is not just a God of miracles that powerfully intervenes in our life at various moments, but rather it's much sweeter than that. It's much greater than that. God is with us in every moment of every day. Even in those mundane, ordinary moments, we can trust That no matter what, whether if the day is bright or dark, whether if the day is normal or in the middle of a quarantine situation, God is with us. And he's committed to us, even when we are resistant to his leading. And that's what we're going to see in our passage. It is, again, a passage and a message of hope. And let's read it in hope. Genesis chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now, right from the get-go, we see of the east. That's not a good thing, usually, in the scriptures, okay? Troubles ahead. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the big stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, And then put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to the shepherds, Is it well with him? The shepherds said, It is well. And see Rachel's daughters coming with his sheep. He said, Behold, it is still a high day. Is it not time for the livestock to be gathered together? water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, her her sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told him all of these things and, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should... Give her to any of the other men. Stay with me. So Jacob served years, or seven, uh, rather, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but only a few days because of the love he had for her. After seven years, verse twenty-one. Then Jacob said to Laban, "Give me my wife, that I might go into her, for my time is completed." So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a big feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah. And brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you uh, for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and then I will give you the other also in returning Uh, for serving me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his uh, female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Crazy. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that um, even as we sit uh, by ourselves in front of our computers, that you would use this time to unite the men of Amen together as we study your scriptures together. We pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that we would uh, learn uh, from the life of Jacob the things that you want for us. More than anything, Lord, we pray that we would uh, learn and believe more deeply in your faithfulness and in your grace, Um, Lord, fill us by the power of your spirit. Uh, Don't please inform us, but also transform us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Growing up um, as a kid and and young adult, and now I've had the amazing privilege and benefit of being raised by a Bible believing, Jesus loving Christian mother and father. Um, I, however, although I believe the gospel and, and knew the gospel I didn't appropriate the gospel early on I I never made it my own um, or grab a hold of those promises by faith however all of that began to change the the summer uh, before my my senior year in high school now before I became a Christian I was a relatively moral kid Um, I didn't do a lot of bad things however I did get in a lot of trouble I got myself in a lot of bad situations and that summer it was probably uh, the worst trouble I've been in up until that point. Um, for whatever reason, uh, during that, that time of my life, my neighborhood friends, which were all my high school friends, we loved to sneak out uh, past curfew. Um, we didn't really do a whole lot of bad stuff. Sometimes we did, but not often. We just like to sneak out to break the rules just to break the rules. <laughs> and that's what we did in, in Germantown. Now, I stress Germantown because if you know about Germantown police, all right, they take curfew laws as seriously as they do murder, okay? <laughs> it is bad news to break out curfew in Germantown, but I did it. Uh, one day, my, my parents caught me, and um, you know they were sweet, they were kind, they were stern. They told me not to do that. One, because they loved me, and they didn't want anything bad to happen to me. Nothing good happens after a certain hour. Um, but they also just wanted me to be a disciplined man, a godly man, all right? Um, I didn't pay attention to him um, because I really didn't know the Lord. And I was a, uh, a teenage kid that didn't listen to his parents. This one night, uh, I snuck out again. And we went to the local park. Again, I can't even remember what we were doing. We were just hanging out. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. And we were talking, my, my two friends and I. Then all of a sudden, a spotlight shines on us. Now my friends knew what that was. I, I looked and they were, they just took off like deer. <laughs> one of my friends was very out of shape, but he must've run like a 4240 out of that park. I mean, he ran a full five miles I came to find later. And he made it home safely. I, however, did not. I was a deer in the headlights. And as I saw my friends run off, I ran off too, but but they were hot on my trail, the policemen. I made it one block. <laughs> I hood a, 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 a hid the, the side of the house just to catch my breath, and uh, just as I started to leave again to try to make it back to my house, this policeman must have done like a ninja backflip over uh, this fence, and uh, you know he caught me. <laughs> I was scared to death, and I came later to find out there had been a string of robberies in this uh, area uh, the past couple of weekends, and so th- they thought I was the robber, and so they dealt with me seriously. I went up against the the fence. I was patted down. Uh, They came to find out that I was not a jewel thief. I was just a dumb kid. And so they threw me in the back of a cop car and uh, they called my parents. Now I much uh, rather would have gone to jail (laughs) than see my parents, Um, but they called my parents. My dad came and they put me or rather I, I walked into my dad's car and he's in the driver's seat. I'm in the back and he looks behind his seat and he says, Barton, I'm not even going to yell at you because you have a lot of that coming home when you see mom. <laughs> now, for those of you that didn't know my mom, she was the most loving human being on the face of the planet. No one comes close, so kind. She ferociously loved her family and her children, but you did not mess with my mother. <laughs> and so when my dad got me home, well, let's just say um, that I was disciplined and we'll, and we'll leave it at that. Um, There's a lot of stuff that happened subsequently I was grounded. Um, I had to earn back my my parents' trust. They loved me, but I disobeyed them repeatedly. So I had to earn that back. I also got in trouble with the local court. (laughs) And uh, as I'm looking back on on that season of my life, there's two things that stick out to me. First off, my parents did not discipline me uh, out of wrath or because they hated me. They disciplined me because they loved me. That's why they did it. And I understand what that means now as a parent, but they disciplined me faithfully because they loved me faithfully. The other thing I remember and can look back and see now is that even during that moment of disobedience um, and the hardships that followed because of my disobedience, God used it in my life to bring me to himself. In fact, I had to do community service because of this whole thing because I put the officers' lives in danger. (laughs) But I had to do community service and my uh, mom uh, made me do it at the local church. And it was a church all my friends went to, um, but it was through that community service at this church that I met the men who would eventually lead me to Christ. You see, God put me through um, what some folks call the school of hard knocks to save me, to redeem me, to bring him, to bring me rather to himself. And that's exactly what we see in our, in our passage today. God was about to put Jacob through the school of hard knocks, not out of anger or wrath, but out of love in order to bring Jacob to himself. Now, Jacob would be in this school of hard knocks longer than I was. He, was. he was going to be in it for many years. But God proved faithful to Jacob and bringing him to himself even through his disobedience and the hard moments of his life. Now, as we look in this text, there's, uh, again, three things I want us to see as it relates to God's faithfulness and his providential care. First off, God in his grace gives his people what they do not deserve. We see that in the first couple of verses. The second point I want us to see is that in his grace, sometimes, sometimes God gives us exactly what we deserve. And we'll see why that's good news in a little bit. Thirdly, I want us to see that God in his faithfulness works all of it, the good and the bad out together for the good of those whom he has set his love. And that is excellent news. Now, in our first point, in verses 1 through 12, we see that God graciously gives his people what they do not deserve. Remember, the, the last time that we saw Jacob, it was at the place called Bethel, where he had that amazing experience with the Lord. He woke up the next day, and soon after that, he went on the journey to his mother, uh, Rebecca's homeland. Now, it's in that journey, and certainly at his arrival of the destination, that we see God graciously, uh, graciously give that duplicit, sinful, faithless Jacob amazing things that he did not deserve. Uh, Gifts of grace. Now there's two major gifts of grace that we see in this passage. The first one we see in the very first verse, verse one, we see that God's uh, gracious gift of providence in verse one for his people, God's gracious gift of providence. In the first eight verses, we see that Jacob, uh, he embarks on this journey. It's a long journey. It's about 500 or so miles, which probably would have taken uh, Jacob three weeks. And remember, he's heading to the east, right? And we know that from the Bible, if you're just that phrase to the east or in the east, that usually symbolizes danger and trouble. Uh providentially too, and we're going to refer back to this later, why this happened, Jacob didn't have a dime to his name. When Isaac sent him off, he didn't give him sheep. He didn't give him cattle or servants or riches. Jacob is by, or is, is by himself, and this is a, a long, a strenuous journey. But what we see is that in every step of the way, every moment, God was with him. God had his hand on Jacob, leading him, guarding him, and guiding him to the place that God had for him. Now, how do we know that? Well, first off, we just know that theologically. We know that from elsewhere in scripture, from our theology, from our systematic theology uh, books. We just know that, that God works providentially in the lives of his people. We know that he is guarding us, guiding us, and leading us. We can trust that, his sovereignty. But we also see it explicitly in the grammar of first 1. In verse 1, we see that phrase that Jacob went on his journey. Now, that's not really the the greatest translation, right? Because in the original language, that verb went is nasah, right? And nasah generally means to lift up. Now, it's really unusual. That that verb is used about 600 different times in the Old Testament. More often than not, it's associated with one's heart or one's eyes. Their eyes or their heart or their soul were lifted up usually to the Lord. But scholars make note that Moses uses that word intentionally in a very unusual way in verse 1. In fact, I looked, I couldn't find a place. There there might be another place, but I think this is the only place that that word nasa is associated with one's feet. Jacob lifted up his feet. Now scholars tell us that the reason Moses chose that unusual word intentionally in this instance was to convey to you and I that God himself was the one that lifted Jacob's feet. This verb elsewhere is used in places, particularly Exodus, I think uh, Exodus chapter 10 in a few places. This verb is ascribed to the Lord um, where God providentially bring, uh, brings things about. Um, so it's, it's a word that is attributed to the Lord that he's providentially moving. And so Moses gives us this verb in in this instance, in this situation to tell us that, that it was God who lifted up Jacob's feet to set him on the journey that God had chosen for him. It's that that ladder. God was with him. Now think about how encouraging that was. Jacob was on a very long journey. Who else was on a long journey? The original audience. Israel. (laughs) Jacob's posterity. They were on a journey and a much longer journey that Jacob would be on. But they were being reminded that God was with them. Brothers, we are on a journey. We're on a journey to the new heavens and the new earth and there's many snares along the way, but we are reminded by Moses that God is providentially guarding and guiding and leading his people. He's establishing our steps. Now in the scriptures, the whole idea of God um, guiding and, and establishing our steps is a big one. For example, Proverbs 14 tells us that a prudent man, a wise, a righteous man, Is one who gives thought to their steps. Now, essentially, what that means is that uh, the righteous person, the wise person, does not go about life carelessly. They go about life intentionally. Mainly, they they go through life having a holistic devotion uh, with the Lord. They they they're, they're abiding in God's scriptures. They're abiding in truth. They have this God consciousness where they're seeking to live within God's design and will. We see this elsewhere in Proverbs 16 and and other places, that that man makes his plans, but God establishes his steps. Now, taking all that together, what that tells us is that you and I, we make a whole lot of plans. (laughs) And that's not altogether bad. We make plans but never forget that it's God who establishes our steps, brothers. It's kind of what James tells us in James, in James chapter 4. Don't boast about what you'll do tomorrow or today, this or that. Don't boast in that. Uh, rather, what you should say is if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. James is calling us and Moses is reminding us that you and I are to have a, a God-consciousness that we are to submit to his will and to follow his leading. Because as we'll see in the remainder of this text and and all over the the Bible, is that if we cooperate with God, of course we'll still have pain and, and suffering in this life, but if we cooperate with God's leading and follow him and submit to him, we'll experience much peace. But if we're obstinate, if, if we buff up against against His will, God will still get His people in the place in which He wants them to go. But it'll be a lot tougher. And some of us have experienced that toughness before. We're about to see it in the life of Jacob. Brothers, uh, God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is 100% holistically invested in making His people holy. He loves you that much that he wants you to be like his son Jesus. But when we are obstinate, when we're shuffling our feet and going our own way, God will get us where he wants us to go, but it will be difficult. But the point of this first uh, point in verses 1 through 12 is that God in his graciousness, right, he directs us in the way that we ought to go. And what's mind blowing about this is that God had no business blessing Jacob in this way because remember Jacob was a louse, right? He was faithless, he uh, uh, disobeyed God often, but God kept his hand on that coward Jacob in order to bring him to the place of blessing for no other reason then God had set his love upon him. By grace. The definition of grace. The first gift that we see is in verse 1, the gift of God's gracious providence. Now, the second gift of grace that we see, and under this first point, is the second subpoint: God's gracious gift of love. We see this in verses 2 through 12. As we see in the text, God's gracious providence lifted up. Jacob's feet and took him to a well in verse two. Now, wells, uh, those were, you know, they had an important meaning to Jacob's family. In fact, Jacob heard many bedtime stories about wells when his mother and father um, um, told him stories to go to bed. Remember, uh, there was a very important well in Rachel's history when uh, uh, Abram, or I'm sorry, in Rebecca's history, when Abram sent his servant to uh, Rebecca's father to find himself a wife. And it's that that well that she was found in his her love story with Abram started, or rather with uh, uh, Isaac started. Um, Jacob grew up hearing about wells. And when he was brought sovereignly and providentially by God to, to this well, <laughs> he must have been getting excited. He must have thought, oh man, there's a well. I know about wells. Surely God is is God is up to something. But as we get to the text, we see that the first people that he meets at this well are a bunch of lazy shepherds. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it doesn't seem to go that well, these shepherds, um, they were uh, waiting for other shepherds to arrive so they could hoist the, the, the top of this well off and so they could all feed their sheep together. But they weren't very friendly with Jacob and Jacob was getting a little smart with them. You can kind of read that in the text. And and it looks like they're about to get into a royal rumble. But then Rachel shows up. And my goodness, when Rachel shows up, it was like no one else was there. You may remember when you met your spouse and or significant other, ladies, if you're watching. When you saw your spouse-to-be for the first time or when you first fell for your spouse, it was like no one else was in the room. Jacob set his eyes on Rachel. I mean, it was like tractor beams. I mean, he was just sucked in. And in that moment, he knew he was in love. And when he was uh, sucked in by her, when he was just entranced by by her beauty, a beauty that he's never seen before, he, does, he did what all of us did when we first saw our spouses and wanted to make a good impression. He started peacocking, <laughs> and he does some some pretty funny things and some very sweet things. Uh, first off, when he saw her, he uh, got what was only could be described of as divine strength, but he hoisted that giant stone by himself. When the other shepherds saw that, they, their, their jaws must have dropped. They must have been thanking the Lord they never got into a fight with this Jacob because he was one tough customer. But he, he moved that, that well covering by himself, and then what did he do? He, he just completely dismissed all of the men that were waiting, and he watered Rachel's sheeps first. A great act of strength and a great act of kindness. And what followed from this meeting was one of the greatest love stories that we have in Scripture. It wasn't um, infatuation. It wasn't a summertime fling. It was true love. And there's many uh, evidences that we that we have from the Scriptures to know that this was the case. In verse 11, after he did, did that uh, great act of physical strength and that act of kindness, he kissed Rachel. I mean, he laid one right on her smackers, and she didn't seem to be bothered by it. She, she, you know, she she was into into Jacob. Remember, not only did God providentially lead Jacob to this well, but God was also providentially leading Rachel to this well. She was coming out of a pagan background, but God providentially moved her to meet Jacob to be included in God's chosen people. So he kissed her. And then he cries out with joy. He, he must have felt like God was doing something spectacular in his life. Uh, secondly, um, we see in verse 17 that he only had eyes for Rachel. When he first met Leah, now we we see that Leah was described as, as having weak eyes, which meant that she was less desirable than Rachel. But that's not the main point of verse 17. The main point of verse 17 is that Jacob only had eyes for Rachel. Rachel was the the apple of his eye. And that's verbally expressed to us in the very next verse, in verse 18, that, that Jacob loved Rachel, loved her. And we see out through the course of his life that it was, in fact, a genuine love. First off, it was a patient love. As we'll see, Jacob had to endure many things to be with the apple of his eye. It was a patient love. It was also an all-satisfying love. After they're married and many years later, Rachel will die in childbirth. And it must have been just absolutely heartbreaking for Jacob to go through that. But the son that was born from from that sorrow, Jacob did not name uh, that boy uh, Benoni, which would have been the son of my sorrow, which kind of carries with it a resentment that it was because of your birth that my beloved is dead. He didn't name him that. He named him Benjamin, the son of my strength. So whenever Jacob would look upon Benjamin, he'd be reminded of his strength, his apple, his love of his life. It was a satisfying love. He cherished her. It was also an enduring love, a lasting love, at the end of Jacob's life in Genesis 48 as as Jacob is on his own deathbed he's is, he is passing the uh, the blessings to his posterity he's speaking to Joseph and he's giving the blessing as his father had done before with him but in the middle of that blessing he just stops and communicates his deep sorrow uh, over the passing of his wife Rachel many years before now why did he do that? It had absolutely nothing to do with the blessing All it tells us is that as he was passing away, his heart was set on his beloved whom he loved for all of his life. It was a wonderful love. What we see in verses one through 12 is that God's goodness is undeserved as he graciously led the lying, cheating, and stealing Jacob to the place of blessing and blessed him with love. God graciously gives his people what they don't deserve. Now, um, there's no hint here that uh, Jacob gave uh, uh, honor to the Lord for doing all of this. He doesn't pray. He doesn't worship. He doesn't even give thanks. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the, but the main point to take away is that God gives his people what they don't deserve graciously because in his grace, God providentially leads us to a place of blessing. Now, the main question we have uh, going forward is that's great, but what about Jacob's sin? Um, You know, I'm I'm glad that God gave him what he doesn't deserve, but it seems as if Jacob is getting away with a lot. I mean, he did a lot of backwards wicked things. Is he getting away with his crimes? Um, Can we get away with our crimes? Does God even care? Well, of course God cares. And no, Jacob didn't get away with anything. In fact, in our second point we're about to see is that Jacob is going to learn one of the greatest principles of the Bible, that those whom God loves, he also faithfully disciplines. Now for our second point in verses 13 through the end of our passage today, verse 30, we see that sometimes God mercifully gives his people what they do deserve. Now we see that it was at that well that not only did God uh, bless Jacob and bring into his life the apple of his eye. But he also did something really far greater for, for Jacob personally. He also at that well brought in the chief tool of sanctification that God would use in his life, which Jacob needed more than anything else. And that tool was his future father-in-law, current uncle Laban. Um, God needed to, uh Essentially, he needed to break down Jacob in order to build him back up, right? Because up until this point, um, I'm sure Jacob thought that crime does pay. The schemes of his mother, Rebecca, seem to have paid off. His lying and his duplicit nature seems to have gotten him far in life. It doesn't seem as if God is too miffed about it. Maybe God doesn't care. Um, Listen, God needed to break him down in order to build him back up. And he was about to do that by bringing Jacob into the school of hard knocks. I didn't make that phrase up. Y'all have used that before. A lot of theologians refer to this passage as the school of hard knocks. But but, uh, Jacob was about to experience it in a very big way. Now, there's three things that uh, Jacob learns in this school. First off, he learns that the way of the unfaithful is hard. And that just isn't like a pithy statement. It is hard, the way the unfaithful. Including God's chosen people who live unfaithfully. That way is difficult, as Jacob is going to find out. He also learned that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, as Paul tells us in Galatians 6. But most importantly, um, even though it would be a difficult lesson, it was a great lesson, what he would learn is that those whom God loves, he disciplines faithfully. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, which we'll read about in a couple of moments. But let's first look at this sanctifying agent that God uses in Jacob's life, his uncle Laban. Now we meet him around verse 14, and that's after, uh, you know, Jacob kisses Rachel, tells Rachel who he is. She runs off to tell her dad about this very dreamy boy that uh, that she had just met, that she's in love. And And, um, well, you know, Laban gets excited, um, because I'm I'm sure he thought he was about to get an awesome payday because the last time someone from Abraham's house went to see, uh, uh, Laban's house, remember it's when Abraham sent a servant to get Rebecca (laughs) and Rebecca Laban's dad, you know, he got a payday from that. And I'm sure that's what... That's what Laban thought here. And so he rushes to meet Jacob and he embraces him and he kisses him and and it looks like this wonderful meeting. And he even says, ah, surely uh, this is my bone, this is my flesh. It even seems like it's an echo of Eden, this beautiful thing. Uh, Not really, (laughs) it wasn't wasn't beautiful at all. In fact, scholars say that when Laban said, um, uh, surely this is my bone and this is my flesh, it wasn't out of joy. Um, it, it was more out of uh, uh, just you know, man. This is this is just how it is. I guess you are my 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 kin. You can stay with this as as long as you need for a while. I suppose. Remember, because Jacob providentially was not given sheep. He wasn't given money. He was all by himself, and so it, it shot Laban's dreams of getting rich pretty quick when he saw Jacob. But then Jacob told him about all of these things that have have taken place and and how he's gotten here up to this point. And and Jacob wasn't excited, or rather uh, Laban wasn't excited. He thought Jacob uh, was going to be a drain on his finances. And he didn't want Jacob to to marry his prized, beautiful daughter, Rachel. So he says, fine, you can stay with me as long as you want. Um, More than that, uh, Laban saw an opportunity to take advantage of Jacob, which is exactly what he does just one month later, when they start talking about Jacob's relationship with Rachel. And this is uh, what Laban essentially says. He says, if you want my daughter, uh, you're gonna have to work for her. You have to have wages. Now he says it in kind of a kind way, um, are you my kin that you should, you know, but he, he's treating, he's treating uh, Jacob as a servant. And in order to marry Rachel, he has to to essentially be enslaved for seven years. Now think about how big of a deal, how humiliating that would have been for Jacob. Remember, Jacob was royalty. He was the he was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Jacob. This is God's chosen people. He was a patriarch, he was royalty. Now he was a strong guy, probably worked with his hands, but he never had to work for anything. Certainly a wage. But here he is in this humiliating position where he was going to have to serve a man of a lesser station. Not only that, the years that he was going to have to serve Laban was about double what a normal dowry was back then. Just a normal Joe would work three to four years. But here is a prince or a prince to be rather serving seven years beneath his station. But Jacob did not care (laughs) because as we see in the text, it was just about a few days in Jacob's mind and heart because he loved Rachel and he would do absolutely anything for the apple of his eye, such love. However, seven years pass, as we see in verse 21, and Jacob is about to graduate into the upper level courses of the school of hard knocks. After seven years, Jacob finally demands uh, Laban um, fulfill his end of the bargain. Seven years is up. I'm sure you had some way to judge it, but seven years are up. He goes, all right, old man, where's my wife? She's mine. Live up to your end of the bargain. And uh, Jacob, um, uh, or rather Laban, kind of does. But of course, as we read, he he does this whole scheme. And what he and Leah, not Leah, we're not watching Star Wars here, Leah come up with is nothing short of a soap opera ugly situation. Uh, Laban, he throws this giant wedding party for Jacob and Rachel. It's this giant feast, this giant party as it would have been uh, during that time. Then it comes time for the consummation, the honeymoon. And you know Jacob and Rachel had been longing for that moment. I mean, it's been seven years, they're ready, okay? Um, But somehow, some way, as Jacob is heading towards his wedding bed, Laban intervenes, somehow he restrains Rachel and he fixed uh, Leah up in such a way to where she seems and looks like Rachel. Now it must've been a dark night, obviously, for Jacob not to, to see what was going on. But he switched down his daughters. Now this was a big deal, all right? For, for a man and a woman um, who were respectable in that age, if they slept together, if they made love, they were essentially married. It wasn't, there wasn't anything about casual sex back then for a respectable, faithful person as there is today, but it's certainly back then, if they may love, they were married. Secondly, think about Leah. God loved Leah. Um, he blesses her as we'll see a little bit this week, but certainly next week. Um, uh, even um, Jacob had compassion for Leah, as we'll see next week. But Leah was very much complacent or, or complicit in this. She had to do a lot of things and say a lot of things in order to trick Jacob. Very wicked. Well, of course, Jacob wakes up the next day and his mind explodes. He goes, who are you people? I mean, you are just crazy, wicked. Laban, what did you do to me? He knew that the jig was up, he knew that he had been duped, and this whole situation, this soap opera drama would cause him heartache and humiliation and and drama for the rest of his life, including the lives of his wives. But he confronts Laban and Laban gives this just shallow response, but he ends up making another deal with uh, Jacob to marry Rachel, that he would have to work another seven years, which of course he did, where finally he was able to marry. And live with the apple of his eye—a horrible situation. It's hard to imagine, but if you can put your shoes and in, 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 in Jacob's, put your feet in Jacob's shoes, it would have been a terrible thing. Um, now, even as we consider that, just think about the ironies—the things that, that Jacob must have realized after his anger subsided. Because there's a lot of irony in this, in this whole scheme from Laban and Leah. First off. Um, Rebecca received the promise long time ago that her younger son, Jacob, would be served by her older son, Esau. That would eventually come to pass, but not before her prideful younger son, Jacob, would serve a man beneath his station, Laban, for 20 plus years. It gets gets more ironic than that. Just as Laban tricked Jacob in the matter of of Leah uh, with a mercenary spirit, a cold-blooded spirit. Jacob had that same mercenary spirit, that that same cold bloodedness in the way that he tricked his brother Esau. Now, the most striking irony is when Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, by allowing his mother to dress him up, to put hair on his neck and his hands in order to trick Isaac into thinking that he was Esau. Just like Laban dressed up his daughter Leah to trick Jacob that that was Rachel. It seemed as if that the temporal consequences of his sin matched the crimes that Jacob had committed. Now think about that. What in the world is God doing? Is this, is this karma? No, it's not karma. Of course it's not karma. Karma is pagan. Never think that karma is a real thing. What this is, is mercy. It's severe mercy, brothers. But it's mercy. In this school of hard knocks, in in those 20 plus years of humiliating uh, servitude, what what did Jacob learn? Well, we see that he he, he, will eventually see that he began to learn compassion. It's in this situation that he began to learn um, humility. And he began to set his eyes on the Father and depend on the Lord in every moment of his life. Now, it would take him a long time for those things to really come to fruition. But he's learning those now. Brothers, Brothers, God loved Jacob. He told him so through Jacob's father, Isaac, and directly through a vision. He blessed Isaac beyond his wildest dreams, uh, even though he was undeserving. He loved Jacob and he proved it. But he loved him so much that in his mercy, he gave Jacob what he deserved. Now, why? Why would God give us sometimes what we deserve in this life? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, I'll read it quickly. Uh, the writer says, is it for discipline that you have to endure? God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in what all we have participated in, then you are in a, an illegitimate children. You're not a son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For our earthly parents disciplined us for for a short time as it seemed best to them, but, but God disciplines us for our good, get this, that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. My parents, my mother, my dad disciplined me not because they hated me, but because they loved me. God sometimes allows us to experience the typical consequences of our sin, not out of wrath, but out of love for us, because sometimes severe mercy is what is needed for us to wake up and follow his leading. Uh, what we learned here, brothers, in this passage is that God disciplines his children, and that discipline oftentimes is painful but it's never punitive. His discipline is always restorative because he loves us. If you're living like Jacob right now, that you're obstinate, uh, that you are living contrary to his will, that you're, you're deciding in yourself that you're just gonna do business with the Lord when you're ready, this passage is both a warning and a comfort And they go hand in hand because essentially what this is telling us is that those whom God has set his love upon, God will bring you back thick or thin come hell or high water. He will all but destroy you in order to save you because he loves you. That does not give us a sin license as Paul says in Romans where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more, but that isn't Mean that we can continue on sinning. In fact, if you know His grace, if you know His faithfulness to you, you're not going to want to. But His faithfulness, His grace is meant to woo us back to Him that we might live within His design, submit to His will, and follow His leading. And that is what Moses is doing for us right now. Brothers, God is unflinchingly faithful to His people. And that means even sometimes He allows us uh, to experience the temporal consequences of our sins, that He gives us what we deserve. Now, finally, we see uh, in this passage uh, implicitly, but elsewhere explicitly, that in his grace, God sovereignly works out all things, all things, both good and bad for the good of those he loves, that he has set his love upon. Now, as we look at this passage, you know, on the surface, this whole family drama was an unmitigated disaster. Um, I mean, seriously, uh, uh, his 20 years, with Laban. During that time, his beloved mother died. He never got to see her again. He also now has two wives and will eventually have two servant concubines, which will cause him great trauma and drama and pain and suffering for the rest of his life. And he also experienced 20 grueling years serving a wretched man. And I'm sure as he was experiencing those temporal consequences of his sins, at some point, he must have thought that he was also experiencing the spiritual, the the greater spiritual consequences of his sin. Namely, that God had abandoned him and left him, that he had finally outrun God's grace, as so many of us sometimes think and feel and worry about. There must have been a moment in his life where he thought, my goodness, where is that angel-freighted staircase now in my life? I can't see God here. The answer, the truth is, is that angel-freighted staircase that extended to heaven was where it had always been, at Jacob's feet. Even in these moments that were so hard for him, God was with him. God was going to keep him. And God was not going to let anything happen to him. God would never lead him. And in his faithfulness, he was going to work out absolutely everything in Jacob's life because God loved Jacob. And brothers, if you're in Christ, he loves you too. Let's just think about how God worked all of this out for Jacob. During his time of servitude, not only would he eventually come to know and learn compassion and humility and depending upon the Lord for all things. But just think about this. Even though this was kind of a a gross family soap opera drama, two wives, two two concubines, God would eventually work all of that out to bring about the 12 tribes of Israel. He would bring it about to, to transform this cowardly Jacob into mighty Israel whom God cherished and loved. Just think of and We're going to see this next week when we, when we talk about the birth wars that are going to happen. But just think about Leah too. Uh, two of, of Leah's children, right? She, in, in, her, in her birth uh, giving, she would give birth to the kingly tribe of Judah, and she would also give birth to the priestly tribe of Levi, which meant that Leah's the lesser loved wife, Leah's offspring, ultimate offspring would be Moses, it would be King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his faithfulness was taking all of these these broken people and all of their mess and he was working out in such a way for their good and his glory, he was blessing them. God was faithful to his covenant promises and he was faithful to Jacob. Now let's think about this. Because God was faithful to Jacob and his covenant people and his covenant promises, brothers, that means that God was also sovereignly working out everything for us too in this passage. I mean, just think about it. When you, when you look at this story with the eyes of faith, you see that God's gracious providence in Jacob's life was for you and was for me. Just think about it. When you see God moving Jacob to that well, when you see God moving Rachel to that well, when you see all of these wicked people plotting and scheming, but God using it for, for his purposes, what do we see? We see God providentially moving history for our sakes. Jacob needed to be married to Rachel so that it might have children. So that through those children, you and I might have Christ think about that friends the gospel is all over the pages of Genesis chapter 29 namely because this imperfect sinful Jacob was just a shadow of the greater and perfect Jacob to come all of Scripture is about Christ and points to Christ and and we see that here Jesus is the greater perfect Jacob we see that in Jesus God has graciously given you and I what we didn't deserve he has given us the amazing gift of love in Christ. Just think about this. Jesus is the perfect Jacob. And he has perfect love for his bride, the church. But the truth is, you and I are like Leah. We're, we're nothing to write home about. We're scheming. We're duplicit. In our, in, our, in, our, in our scheming. We're, we're sinful. We're Leah in the story. But Christ, the perfect Jacob, treats us as if we are Rachel. We are the apple of God's eye. We are the apple of Christ's eye. And he will do anything and everything, brothers, to bring us home. In Christ, God gives us what we did not deserve. He gave us us a marriage with our Lord and Savior. Secondly, in Christ, God graciously gives us sometimes what we do deserve. Unlike sinful Jacob, who received the sentence of servitude and hard labor for his crimes, the the perfect Jacob who never sinned received the sentence of death for our sakes. The perfect Jacob, he took on our ultimate spiritual consequences of sin so that you and I might not ever have to. And because of that, when you trust in him, when you experience hardships and the temporal consequences of your sin in this life, you need not fear what you must do is give thanks because God is mercifully allowing you to experience those things to make you more like his son. And because of that, we can rejoice that in Christ, God works out all things, both good things and bad things for our good, those whom he has set his love upon. Brothers, if God did not spare his only son, as Paul says, his perfect Jacob, his beloved, if he did not spare him, Will he not graciously give us all things? And what are those all things? Those all things in that Romans passage is everything that is needed to bring you and to bring me home to our Lord. And why does he do that? Not because we earned it or deserved it, not because we're beautiful, simply because he set his faithful love upon us. One of my favorite hymns, I know one of your favorite hymns, is Great is Thy Faithfulness. Now, most hymns have some amazing story behind them, and I often share what those stories are. That's not the case for Great is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, It was written by a man named Thomas Chisholm. Nothing very extraordinary happened in his life. He was an insurance salesman, and he simply one day reflected on God's faithfulness towards him, and this is what he wrote. He says, my income had never been large at any moment due to his impaired health which followed him until uh, now. Um, He had some impairment that that kept him from enjoying life to the fullest. He wasn't very wealthy at all. But then he writes, I must not fail to forget, however, to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God who has given me wonderful displays of his providing care, which he has filled me with astonishing gratefulness. At no point in Thomas's life could he point to circumstances of abundance or what other people might say, oh, man, that guy's blessed. At no point could he point to something like that. But as Thomas looked at the trajectory of his own life, he concluded that not once has God ever failed to have been faithful to his covenant promises, which meant that that God could not, did not, and will not fail in his covenant love. For him. Brothers, that's the type of faithfulness that we see in the scriptures of the God whom has chosen us. He is faithful to us. Uh, The God of scriptures who gave his son, Jesus Christ, who did not fail in his mission in bringing Christ to us, promises us that he will not fail in bringing us us, to him. I'm not sure where you are. I know all of us are like Jacob. (laughs) Sometimes we're more like Jacob. other times but brothers you can trust your savior if you need to repent repent but you can trust his faithfulness to you come to the lord come to jesus brothers because he is faithful amen